<clears throat> Good afternoon. Is this working? Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome again to the Atlantic Council. Uh, for those who don't know me, I'm Dick Morningstar, the chairman of the Global Energy Center here, uh, and I'm pleased to welcome all of you uh, to this afternoon's discussion on the achievements and remaining priorities of the U.S. chairmanship of the Arctic Council. So we're pleased to have all of you here to discuss this uh, really important and uh, timely uh, topic. I think it's safe to say that the Arctic region uh, epitomizes the complexity of balancing uh, climate responsibility and energy needs in a rapidly changing world. It also epitomizes the difficulty and the necessity of effective governance, cooperation of multiple countries that control Arctic territory, as well as the inclusion of stakeholder groups ranging from local indigenous communities to distant observer countries. It's also of great interest, I think, from a political and security standpoint, and one of the questions is, will that become more so um, as time uh, goes on? Uh, the Arctic Council is a unique institution which since the 1990s has been an, in <clears throat> an increasingly important forum uh, for coordination among Arctic states to address the challenges and opportunities of the Arctic region. Chairmanship of the Arctic Council revolves every two years. Uh, with the uh, United States currently holding the position, uh, and now with the presidential elections coming up next month, uh, we find the United States in the fascinating position of holding the chairmanship uh, during a change in administration. I don't know if the panel is going to want to talk about what happens depending on who wins. Um, so not only are we eager uh, to learn today about what the U.S. priorities and accomplishments uh, have been since it took the chairmanship in the summer of 2015, but what remains to be done before the chairmanship gets turned over to Finland uh, in uh, 2017. Uh, to address all of these questions, we have an, a very impressive panel with us today. Uh, introducing our panelists will be uh, Ambassador the Wonderful, Paula Dobriansky, who's meant so much to the uh, Atlantic Council uh, as a board member and member of our executive committee and helper and all sorts of things. Uh, and I'm sure most of you know Paula was, among her many other things that are in her biography, um, Undersecretary for Democracy and Global Affairs, uh, and has been that, uh, and is a fellow uh, at the uh, Belfer Center now at uh, the Kennedy School. So I don't think we could have a more knowledgeable uh, group of experts to lend their insights. We thank all of you from being here today. I would introduce you, but Paula's going to do that. Um, and again, thank you to the audience. This is an on-the-record discussion. It's streaming live, and you can join in the conversation on Twitter at AC Global Energy, and don't forget to hashtag AC Energy. Right? Yeah, okay, got that right. Okay, all right. Paula, thank all yours. You. First, thank you, uh, Dick. <laughs> Let me uh, thank Ambassador Morningstar and the uh, Atlantic Council's Global Energy Center for hosting this. It really underscores the importance that is attached to this area. And I think today we're going to have a really vibrant discussion, and we do indeed have a very distinguished and most knowledgeable panel. Let me introduce all of them. 
They're going to each speak from their seat. And then uh, after they all finish down the row, I might ask a few questions. But then what I really like to do is go to you so that we really have a conversation uh, uh, on this topic. So first, we're going to hear from Ambassador Mark Brzezinski, who is the executive director of the White House Arctic Steering Committee. And this committee is part of the Office of Science and Technology uh, uh, policy in the White House itself. Interestingly enough, it was formed to deal with the Arctic issue across the interagency. So you have 25 departments that are part of this. And it has to work dealing with setting of priorities, kind of a tough task uh, indeed. And in fact, uh, you're going to be going to Alaska. Right. And I think. You're sitting in a very good seat because with this, you have closed a lot of the discussion that's taken place between the capital and the federal government and what's happening at the local level. So Thank we're going to hear more from him about, about that because that's a very important piece. As you know, Alaska is right there in part of the Arctic uh, Circle area, and the d indigenous population cares about it deeply. We're going to then hear from, and by the way, what Mark is going to be speaking about will, in fact, be the White House Arctic Science Ministerial that was held in September and its achievements. We're then going to hear from uh, Melanie uh, Nakagawa, who is the Deputy Assistant Secretary for Energy Transformation in the Bureau of Energy Resources at the State Department. And uh, she, too, uh, long background dealing with these issues. She um, not only held this position, she used to be in the policy planning staff and worked very closely with Secretary Kerry on climate change issues, as well as energy and environment, and also served on the Natural Resources Defense Council. She's going to be discussing US energy diplomacy and defining that for you, what energy sustainability means and how this is so very relevant to what's happening in the Arctic. And then after that, we're going to hear from uh, Kathleen Kelly. Uh, Kathleen is a senior fellow at the Center for American Progress. Uh, she's working fundamentally on energy, and, in, and she's the energy and environment team there. But I want to highlight the fact of her tenure at the CEQ, the Council on Environmental Quality, where she led a 20-plus agency task force to develop a national climate resiliency strategy. And that formed the basis, in fact, of the climate preparedness pillar of uh, President Obama's climate action plan. Um, she previously was at the German Marshall Fund. I wanted to highlight those. I know you have this bio, but I think those pieces are also significant to what they're going to be talking about. In her case, she's going to be talking a great deal about the Arctic Council, uh, how it can and should advance certain issues relevant to climate change, the question of how you deal with offshore oil and gas development, local resilience and relocation issues, and also recommendations for the next administration. So yes, Ambassador Morningstar, we will be discussing the next administration. <laughs> so without further ado, uh, Ambassador Brzezinski, please, we'd like to hear from you first. Thank you so much, Paula. Thank you so much, Atlantic Council, for hosting this event on the Arctic and how appropriate it is for the Atlantic Council to do so because I've seen in terms of some of the things that the administration is most proud of in terms of the Arctic this year, there to be a strong Atlanticist overtone to it, meaning this. 
In March, we welcomed the new Prime Minister of Canada, Justin Trudeau, to Washington. And one of the outputs of that state visit was a, a Arctic statement that really reflects an uptick in the close neighborhood relationship America has with Canada and new markers pertaining to the influence of science on Arctic policy and the way climate goals inform Arctic policy. In May, we welcomed the five Nordic countries for a state visit, and we also saw a joint statement to agree that climate sustainability conservation should inform Arctic policy. As Paula said just last month, we, we hosted at the White House the first ever White House Arctic Science Ministerial, which was also attended among uh, a total of 25 governments by Russia um, at a high level, making an important contribution as, of course, an Arctic country as well. And I'm going to talk about the White House Arctic Science Ministerial in a second. But simply, I want to start by saying that while I'm not an Arctic scientist, um, I, as US ambassador to Sweden, I went up to the Arctic more than 10 times. And my interest in the Arctic was really piqued by the crisis of a young man I met up there, a young Sami leader, the Sami being the indigenous population of Northern Europe, with whom I was able to travel to remote locations in Sweden's Arctic area to bear witness on the, up to the impacts of climate change on the central organizing activity of the Sami people, which is reindeer herding. And what Neela told me was this, that within one generation, it's likely that our world will be one indigenous people fewer. Because that central organizing activity, reindeer herding, will cease to exist because of the changes in snow layers in the Arctic area, which makes it impossible for the reindeer to sniff pasture in the winter. Ticks aren't found. Every American knows about ticks. Ticks aren't found in Sweden's Arctic area. Now they're all over the reindeer in northern Sweden, disease vectors that they are, and not just for reindeer. And Neela's warning that our world will be one indigenous people fewer is one that we should heed. Because in a generation, our society will also be feeling a greater and greater impacts in terms of climate change. And that is why the White House last month held the first ever White House Arctic Science Ministerial. To work with others around the world through a range of engagement and a range of expense to combine our science through alignments, through combinations, through joint undertakings, to truly get the best understanding of what is happening in the Arctic and its impact on the people of the Arctic, and what is happening in the Arctic and its impact on the rest of the world. The idea to host a White House Arctic Science Ministerial was hatched in the follow-up to the president's visit to the Arctic a year and a month ago, this time, a year and a month ago. Um, president Barack Obama is the first sitting American president to visit the Arctic. I can tell you that when I began this job in August of 2015, I was shocked that no previous American president had visited the Arctic area given, the, uh, given Alaska you know, whether it would be Dwight Eisenhower or Teddy Roosevelt, but no, Barack Obama was the first. And the higher meaning 
of President Obama's visit to the Arctic is that the looming crisis in the Arctic is a tangible preview of the looming crisis of the global condition. For the president, the Arctic is a foreshadow. It is an augury. It is warming four times faster than anywhere else on Earth. And it seems like every month we are shocked by scientific announcements pertaining to sea ice melt, pertaining to erratic weather patterns that, that are linked to the polar vortex in some way, that it became incumbent on us to truly advance pan-Arctic science as much as possible. But not only with the states that are literal to the Arctic, because after all, we are closest, but you see an ascending interest around the world on the topic of Arctic science and an, and an ascending participation in shipping and maritime in the Arctic, in resource extraction in the Arctic, and in science. And so what we wanted to do was use the platform of the White House to bring together countries around the world that have made a serious commitment in terms of understanding what is happening in the Arctic, to the people of the Arctic, on the resilience issue, on education and STEM and citizen empowerment in the Arctic, but not just limit it to the eight countries that are literal to the Arctic. And so in the end, of course those eight countries were invited, but we had a total of 25 governments, including the United States, around the table to, to host the first ever White House Arctic Science Ministerial. Um, and the output um, of that ministerial was several fold. First, a high level joint statement on the future of the Arctic and a way of working together in terms of Arctic <coughs> science collaboration was, was um, signed and was, was released. Second, a White House fact sheet that goes on, I believe, 12, 13 pages, alignment after alignment, involving every single one of those 25 governments, commitments to work together and to bring new resources, to bring new involvement, new scientific institutions participating in whether it's measuring sea level rise, sea ice thickness, the melting of the permafrost, um, and so forth and so on. Um, and I believe that everyone who's in the audience here has received by email that White House um, fact sheet pertaining to the deliverables. Um, but equally important, informing the ministerial was months and months of two separate tracks of engagement by the White House. First, with the indigenous people of the Arctic, Alaska Native and Arctic indigenous populations. From the spring onward, we reached out and we asked, what are your scientific priorities and goals? How can we bring in, in a better, more constructive way, traditional and local knowledge? And on the day before the ministerial, the ministerial was September 28th, on September 27th, at the White House, John Holdren, the president's science advisor, and the chair, the overall chair, of the White House Arctic Science Ministerial hosted a briefing for more than 40 Alaska Native and Arctic Indigenous leaders to brief them on what it is that we want to accomplish with the ministerial, but to draw them into the deliverables and announcement that we would be making to see what further refinement 
that we could make. The indigenous people are the closest and the most vulnerable to the impact and also have the, so much to offer in terms of literally thousands of years of knowledge of patterns and the way the Arctic has evolved, especially over the last couple of days. That was process one. The second process to make the deliverables truly collective was from the spring onward, the White House Office of, Sci of Science and Technology Policy reached out to all the 25 governments that were being invited to the White House Arctic Science Ministerial. And what we didn't do was say, here are going to be the deliverables for this summit. Please bring your money and come and join us. Instead, we said, bring us your ideas. John Holdren said, bring us your proposals, your initiatives. Let us see where we can all join together under the themes of the White House Arctic Science Ministerial. That collective process is continuing this month, and I hope that it transcends this administration. It truly marks the launching of a process that is more global, more geared into bringing together a range of engagement and a range of expense on Arctic science than ever before. Why don't I stop there? We can pick it up during questions. Great, great, okay. great opening, uh, Ambassador Brzezinski. Melanie, please. Great. Well, thank you so much. And again, I echo the ambassador's thank yous. Uh, it was a, this is a terrific panel. It's a terrific event. And I'm glad to see so much focus on the Arctic issues. It's a, quite an important region. Ambassador Brzezinski made a great case in terms of what the administration has been doing so far with the president's, uh, the first time the president's ever attended and visited the, the U.S. Arctic uh, in his recent trip. So I was going to give a quick overview on the energy diplomacy side of our Arctic engagement from the U.S. Uh, administration right now, uh, especially giving a deeper dive into the clean energy efforts that we're doing as well. Uh, many of you uh, probably recognize what's happening in the Arctic on the oil and gas aspects, but there's also a lot that's also happening on the clean energy, sustainable energy tracks as well. So I'll give a bit more of a deeper dive into some of those areas that we're focused on uh, through the State Department and through the U.S. government as a whole. In particular, many of you all are very much aware of the three priorities under the U.S. chairmanship of the Arctic Council, the stewardship, safety, security of their oceans, the improving economic livelihoods, uh, and really putting people first, and then the other track, which is also on addressing and mitigating the impacts of climate change in the region. On those three tracks in particular, I'm going to focus in on that third track in terms of addressing climate change. The idea for our perspective has really been to focus in and hone in on, on the energy side, on clean energy mitigation. What can we do there? How can the U.S. be a leader in this space in terms of promoting initiatives, programs, collaboration on that particular component? Uh, at the start, I was asked, how do you talk about or how do you define energy diplomacy or what is the U.S. international energy diplomacy strategy in the Arctic region? And to give it a quick summary review, I'd say the first is to ensure environmental responsible management and deployment and, and development of energy resources writ large in the region. It's a focus and an emphasis on cooperation with other Arctic nations, but also other collaborative nations as well with an interest in the Arctic. It's a focus on best practices. It's a focus on long-term long -term resource planning in the region, in particular as it relates to both traditional energy resources and renewable energy resources. We're really taking a whole of government approach. Ambassador Brzezinski gave a great overview of the process that was run for the ministerial and that similar process of engaging not only uh, all agencies within the government, but also reaching out to key stakeholders is one that's really core to the, the U.S. chairmanship and core to how we approach our, our engagement in the Arctic. 
We also are looking at both short-term climate pollutants. This is the black carbon in the region. We're also looking at promoting investment in the region. As, as I mentioned, of the three priorities for the chairmanship, the second one is on putting people first, the investment, uh, econ improving economic livelihoods. And to that point, we're really seeking how do you increase more investment into energy resources in the region, and what can we do to support that? In addition, the last two I just want to mention is obviously the broad engagement and then the, also the other focus on regional renewable energy development and deployment. The region has, very, has a lot of similarities and commonalities among the Arctic states. So how can we look at regional planning and regional engagement strategies for energy resource development in the region? On climate change, Ambassador Brzezinski gave a great overview about the state of climate change in the region, its warming rate, why it's so important. Really, some, many people call it the canary in the coal mine. There's, you know, you, you kind of name the uh, analogy you want to give to the region. But not only is the region really important as a, as a harbinger of what's to come, but it's also really important because the impacts in the region extend 4,000 miles south all around. All the 48, uh, lower 48 countries all will face impacts from a warming Arctic. And that's why it's of utmost importance here in Washington, D.C., to Miami, Florida, even to Hawaii. And that's another key reason that the U.S. chairmanship is really focused on all Arctic issues, not just in the Arctic region per se, but looking south, if you will. In terms of the U.S. government engagement in the region on the energy specific, the ambassador mentioned when the president went uh, to the Arctic was his first trip. The other key piece to that trip was the Glacier Conference. The Glacier Conference that took place in Alaska, that was the President Obama focused on asking all the Arctic states, in particular on the energy piece, to pr provide solutions that can improve livelihoods, to enhance energy security, promote sustainable economic growth, such as renewable energy, te energy technologies and energy efficiency technologies. During this visit, the president announced the creation of new projects to support clean energy development in the Arctic and climate resilience to support the most vulnerable. And I believe that Kathleen will talk more about those components as well. But internationally, we're working very closely with our global partners to achieve a common Arctic interest. And it's very important for the region, in particular for the future of the region, to do that through the Arctic Council itself. We're looking forward to working closely with Finland, who, as many of you know, will take over as the next Arctic Council chair next year in 2017. And this is terrific from our perspective for many reasons, but in particular on the energy component, Finland's a leader in energy efficiency and combined heat and power, two particular energy technologies or energy areas that will be particularly important for Arctic states. And so as Finland works to promote and transfer that knowledge on the energy specific areas, that'll be really important for the rest of the Arctic region as well. Another key area just to touch on is on the Arctic oil and gas resources. Looking more closely at that area, scientific estimates of technically recoverable conventional oil and gas north of the Arctic Circle is around 13% of the world's undiscovered conventional oil and about 30% of the world's undiscovered conventional deposits. The rapid disappearance of sea ice that was mentioned earlier, this is making the resource more accessible for hydrocarbon exploration and exploitation. At this moment, although there isn't much happening in this space in particular, this lull, if you will, is a really important time for us to talk about environmental stewardship and environmental responsibility of the shared resource as well as the extraction of the resource as well. This is an opportunity to promote best practices, more shared practices, more best practice and, and capacity building as well in the region as we think about what the future might hold in terms of that energy resource. Looking at the clean energy components, I'll mention three areas in particular that uh, my office as well as, as through the whole of government we're, we're particularly engaged in. The three areas will be, I'll mention them in acronym and I'll go into greater detail, the area, arena, they're very similar, so I'll just mention those two, and then peer-to-peer -peer exchanges as well. 
So in terms of on the renewable energy resource, there's been fantastic work already done starting to map out the types of renewable energy potential in the Arctic. Energy diversification, energy security, as I mentioned, is a key tenant to our engagement in the region. We define energy security as diversification of energy resources, however one wants to define that diversification. But a key component of diversification of energy resources is including renewable energy resources in the area. And for many in the more remote Arctic regions and Arctic communities, they're almost solely reliant on costly diesel generation for home heating, electricity, transportation. Therefore, sustainable economic development in many of these communities is dependent on the diversification of energy supply, improved access to clean, affordable, reliable uh, energy resources as well. And then in addition, as I mentioned, black carbon, which is a short-lived climate pollutant, uh, black carbon generated by diesel production or diesel combustion in the Arctic also speeds up melting and warming in the region. So while this is a small source overall, there's a lot of evidence to support the fact that black carbon deposits close to where it's generated, again, increases the, the rate of warming in the region and one that we need to focus in on. In addition, on terms of the remote communities, the numbers are quite staggering if you think about the region as a whole. There are about 200 off-grid communities in Alaska alone, 300 in Canada, 70 in Greenland, and likely 3,000 in the Arctic Russia. This is a tremendous market for American businesses, international opportunities, international companies interested in off-grid renewables, smart grids, energy efficiency. And how do we really capture that market and provide an investment climate for that area? So to that end, I'll mention the Arctic Remote Energy Networks Academy. This is ARENA. ARENA, this academy is basically focused on local capacity building, which is essential to ensuring the success of any of these clean energy programs given the remoteness of these rural communities. The U.S. has partnered with Finland, as well as Canada, the Gwich'in Council International, Aleut International Association, Iceland, and the Alaska Center for Energy and Power to create the ARENA networks. Another area, as I mentioned, was the Arctic Renewable Energy Atlas. As Ambassador Brzezinski mentioned in the Science Ministerial, promoting awareness and climate-friendly investment requires understanding the data and where the, where the analysis is. So by overlaying on an existing mapping platform, areas providing a visually compelling platform to communicate the tremendous clean energy potential in the region. We're focused on wind, geothermal, biomass, and solar resources. I'll conclude uh, now and welcome to take questions on each of these areas uh, with a mention of what we're doing on the peer-to-peer -peer exchanges as well. Uh, my bureau in particular, the Energy Resources Bureau, is partnered with Greenland to share experiences on developing efficient microgrid solutions in the Arctic. The first exchange just took place a couple weeks ago in October when eight utility operators, renewable energy specialists, community organizers, and federal tribal representatives from Alaska shared lessons and ideas on renewable energy integration, energy storage solutions, community involvement, and hybrid energy systems with Greenland's Ministry of Energy and their public utility as well. This type of peer-to-peer -peer exchange was really important, again, in terms of building capacity, sharing best practices, and encouraging more Arctic, inter-Arctic uh, collaboration and cooperation. So thank you again for your time and really looking forward to the questions as well as hearing more about where you see partnership opportunities. Okay, thank you, Melanie and Kathleen. Great. Please. Thank you. It's a delight to be here at the Atlantic Council and of course with all of you and to be on this outstanding panel. Um, both Ambassador Brzezinski and Melanie have been working tirelessly, tirelessly I know, because it's hard to get a meeting with either one of them, um, <laughs> to, to really implement the most ambitious 
Arctic Council agenda as possible under the U.S. chairmanship, and it's it's really um, been fabulous to see how much the U.S. government has been able to maximize the agenda, uh, not only to draw attention in China, really stark light on the rapid changes that are occurring in the, the Arctic, but also to advance a real solutions-oriented agenda. So appreciate that, and it's it's great to be here. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit about um, about these dramatic changes that we're we're seeing in the Arctic. The Arctic is really right now warming and melting at an unprecedented rate that really has absolutely dire consequences, not only for people in the region, but around the globe. It's affecting sea ice, it's affecting permafrost, it's affecting the Greenland ice sheet and sea level rise. Um, these are all impacts that have not only affect people in the region, but really are, can be life-changing uh, effects around the globe. I'll talk a little bit about Greenland. Um, Greenland, uh, scientists have been um, studying Greenland carefully, and the latest data and observation really real, reveal a stunning rate of Greenland ice sheet melt. Um, Green, the Greenland ice sheet covers almost the entire island of Greenland. Just to give you a sense of the scale, it's about three times the size of tex Texas. And in its, its thickest place, it's two miles thick. This is just a massive sheet of ice. And if the Greenland ice sheet melts, uh, and we are approaching a point where melting will become unstoppable um, with Greenland, um, that's a 23-foot sea level rise that we will experience over centuries, but we will experience that around the globe. And that will have huge implications for the roughly 3 billion people, or 40% of the population, that live in coastal areas around the globe. So when, when might the Greenland ice sheet melt? This is something that keeps me up at night. Um, the, the scientists uh, estimate, the best estimate among uh, scientists is that the Greenland ice sheet could tip um, to an unstoppable point of melting um, if temperature, global temperatures rise roughly 1.6 degrees Celsius. So this is before um, we would ha actually um, hit our, our goal, the global goal, to, to keep warming below uh, two degrees Celsius globally. So that's, that's significant. Another huge change that we're seeing in the Arctic is with permafrost, Arctic permafrost. This is the perennial frozen ground that covers about 24% of the northern hemisphere. And uh, right now, permafrost holds roughly two times more carbon than um, the atmosphere currently holds. It's a lot of carbon. And um, scientists are studying um, the permafrost carefully and currently estimate that as permafrost thaws, we could see roughly 10% of that carbon being released or seeping into the atmosphere over time. And that is roughly 130 to 160 billion tons of carbon um, seeping into the atmosphere from the frozen ground as it thaws. And this has a real potential to undermine our global efforts uh, to curb climate change unless we really um, step up our, uh, and accelerate our process to curb warming to prevent this, this carbon from seeping into the atmosphere. Um, one, uh, one thing to note is that um, when, when, do, when do experts expect that permafrost will re reach its um, stage of unstoppable thaw? Um, some scientists predict that it could be as low as 1.5 degrees Celsius. 
Um, and and the, the amount of, of carbon released to permafrost in the atmosphere, this is currently not captured by global models that we use to, uh, to set our policies going forward. This is a, a newer area of science, and uh, this is something we're going to have to look at carefully because of the potential it has to really undermine um, and, and accelerate our need to, to do more on climate change. Um, sea ice is another uh, ecosystem in the Arctic that is being dramatically affected by warming temperatures. Sea ice right now, it, it really acts as an Arctic Ocean cooling system and air conditioner for our globe. And it's this white reflective surface of the ice that actually reflects back some of the heat from the sun back into the atmosphere away from the earth. So it actually provides a really important ecosystem service to actually helping to cool our planet. But once that sea ice is gone, that heat gets absorbed into the ocean and into the darker surfaces that the ice leaves behind. And that actually can accelerate warming. It actually leads, into, leads to a kind of a unstoppable chain reaction of warming where the more sea ice we lose, the more warming we actually see. Of course, sea ice is absolutely critical for a number of um, species and uh, marine life in, in the Arctic. Polar bear use the sea ice as a platform for hunting. When that sea ice is gone, uh, they, they have no ground or no, no uh, frozen uh, platform on which to hunt. And so see, the, peril, the polar bear is in, incredibly imperiled by the rate of warming. Um, of course, uh, walrus, whale, other marine life fish um, rely on the sea ice. These are species that the Alaska Native communities and other indigenous populations rely on to support uh, and sustain their economies and for food. So this is critical for them to maintain their, their traditional culture. Um, sea ice rate loss currently, um, we're seeing sea ice melt at a rate of 10% per decade. And this rapid rate of melting, um, we've seen this trend since the early 1970s. Um, so this is a significant impact. So how does, how does this affect Arctic um, communities? Actually, Arctic communities use the sea ice as a protective shield um, that prevents the storm surge and, and storms and sea level rise from um, devastating their communities. And so as the sea ice uh, melts, um, we're seeing Alaska Native communities actually more more imperiled than that, together with, with sea rise and the permafrost thaw, which is the foundation on which Arctic communities are built, um, is really um, creating a, a near climate catastrophe for, for these communities. And for some, it's just, it's not a matter of um, if they will move, um, but actually when they will move. The, the community of Shishmaref um, just this summer in August voted uh, to move. Uh, now, how they will move or when they will move, um, that um, remains to be seen. But Shishmaref is, is not alone uh, in facing this, this question. 84%, according to the uh, US Government Accountability Office, 84% of the communities um, in, co in the coastal um, Alaska um, in coastal Alaska near the Arctic are imperiled. And that's um, 184 communities out of 213. And 31 of those communities are at imminent risk of, of actually literally sliding into the sea. Um, so this issue of, of relocation is becoming uh, more and more serious and more pressing. Uh, this is a trend that we're, we're seeing not only Alaska, but a growing rate of this as severe storms hit in the lower 48 as well. Um, and 
and the need for technical assistance in, in evaluating whether communities should move and when um, is absolutely critical. The US government has providing some of that, but much more is needed. And then, of course, the critical question, how do we pay for the move, um, is, is something, uh, even when a, a community votes to move, they don't necessarily have the resources um, to make the move happen. Um, so that's a challenge that um, not only this, administra this administration, but the next administration is going to have to, to deal with. On the topic of um, oil and gas uh, development in the Arctic, Melanie touched on this. Uh, President Obama last year strengthened the oil and gas um, safety and environmental standards um, for Arctic oil and gas development. That was a big step. Um, but even with this improvement, the US currently lacks the capacity and know-how to really respond to an Arctic uh, oil spill. We don't have the roads. We do not have the critical infrastructure, the deep water ports, the airports. We only have one heavy icebreaker in operation right now. That icebreaker is only going to be operational uh, for another couple of years. We simply do not have the capacity to respond to a spill um, in the Arctic. And, and even though Shell and other companies have currently set aside their um, Arctic oil uh, exploration ambitions, um, if the market rebounds, we could see renewed interest. And we're going to need to address that. Um, the US Department of Interior estimates that future oil and gas development in the Chukchi Sea brings with it a 75% chance of a spill in the Arctic of more than 1,000 barrels of oil. That's a pretty, that's a pretty high risk. And uh, my recommendation is that the President of the United States, President Obama, uh, make an immediate step to address this high risk, uh, given what's at stake, and take Arctic oil and gas drilling out of the five-year, um, the offshore five-year plan right now, which is currently in draft form. Uh, but we simply, do, given the risk and the fact that we do not have the capacity to, to respond to a, 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 an oil spill, we should remove all Arctic oil and gas um, uh, uh, offshore drilling uh, leasing from the five-year leasing plan. What else can we do? Um, President Obama um, has said recently that this is the only planet we've got, and this may be the last shot that we've got to save it. And, and that is absolutely true. Scientists and experts estimate that we only have a very small window um, within which we need to make dramatic steps to reduce uh, global emissions of CO2 and to rapidly transition to a low carbon clean energy economy, just years really to make this transition. And we can immediately start doing this by implementing our emission reduction commitments under the Paris Agreement. This is a historic agreement, 105, 195 countries, both developed and developing countries, have put targets on the table. The Paris Agreement now has enough support to enter into force, force uh, in November, which is a huge accomplishment, much more rapid entry into force than was anticipated. Now we need to implement those targets and really begin to measure progress uh, on countries' steps to implement those targets when countries come together in Marrakesh uh, in November for the next UN climate talks. Also in Marrakesh, uh, countries will need to start putting in place a very solid and transparent accountability system so we can really measure and evaluate countries' progress toward meeting their goals, um, hold them accountable, and then also put them on the hook to put forward every five years uh, more ambitious emission reduction goals. And that's 
Um, the beauty of Paris, the, um, the initial goals are not enough to get us to where we need to be to really prevent dangerous warming, but the Paris Agreement sets up a really durable and lasting framework to strengthen those targets over time, and we need to deliver on that. Um, I'll just say two more things. Um, the, the Arctic Science Ministerial was a huge accomplishment. Um, and I think um, you know, we need to continue to make progress on, on making sure we deliver the best available science to um, world leaders as they evaluate progress in Paris. In 2018, uh, world leaders will start taking stock of our progress toward Paris. And then by 2020, we'll have to put forward new goals. How do we make sure that we have the right science informing that? The IPCC, um, the body that, uh, that is responsible for informing um, world leaders, an excellent group of scientists, um, but they are not on track to put forward their next assessment report until 2022. Um, so we need, in the interim to make sure that the latest science, especially on what's happening in the Arctic, um, is, is getting into the hands of world leaders. And uh, why don't I stop there? I had a couple other recommendations, but I think we can save those for the, okay, the Thanks. The chat. I'm sure you'll have a chance in getting them out in the Q&A. Thank Great. you so much. Great, Kathleen. Let me ask a few questions going down the road before we go to all of you. Mark, uh, for those of us who have been in government here, uh, we can have some skepticism about interagency processes. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned about the 25 and in the uh, steering committee. Dig a little bit deeper in shedding light and highlighting for us how does it exactly work? How do you actually get your priorities out there and how do you avoid duplication? Sure. Thank you, Paula. Um, I think the starting point to answer the question, which is, does this Arctic Executive Steering Committee, which is a platform within the White House, brand new, created by executive order by President Obama in January 2015, work in terms of prioritization and advancing lines of effort? And I would say that the starting point is this, that the Arctic is simultaneously a strategic challenge and a human challenge and there are so many different things and different approaches that we can take on the Arctic, what will be our priorities? And that, when it comes to our government, really has to be set by the White House. And so that is why the Arctic Executive Steering Committee was created, and here's how it's worked. Um, the committee has, I would say, four express missions. First, prioritization in terms of developing a strategy to tactically implement the vision of the president. Second, making sure that we achieve and advance on milestones to achieve, on, to, to, to achieve the promises and the commitments made by the top of the US government. What do I mean by that? Well, when President Obama went to Alaska's Arctic in September 2015, he made more than 40 different promises and commitments, some of which were more high profile, the icebreakers commitment, the Denali Commission as the appropriate vehicle for resilience and adaptation, the renaming of Mount Denali. Um, but underneath those were more specific commitments pertaining to some of the central organizing challenges of rural Alaska. And what are they? Those are, they are water and sanitation and high cost energy. 
energy in rural Alaska can cost 10 times what it costs in the lower 48 because what is pulled out of the ground in Alaska then has to be shipped down to California to be refined before it's brought back up. And so how do we alleviate in the short term and in the long term some of these problems? Well, let's take those specific issues. Um, the Arctic Executive Steering Committee has driven forward um, putting money in the bank in Alaska on water in, in terms of water and sanitation grants um, promised by the Environmental Protection Agency, and that's been done. The Arctic Executive Steering Committee um, executed upon promises that the USDA would provide high-cost energy grants to communities and to families that are particularly afflicted by in high-cost energy zones in Alaska. Um, the Department of Energy has rolled out a remote energy innovation competition to the tune of millions of dollars to the benefit of remote communities. The National Geospatial and Intelligence Agency and the National Science Foundation together are rolling out for the first time high resolution maps of all of Alaska and all of the Arctic. That's relevant because Alaska and the Arctic is some of the least mapped and some of the least charted areas of the world. There are some um, maritime areas in our Arctic where we are still using the cartography developed by people that created them by using lead lines um, years and years and years ago. And so we've been able to drive forward and execute on those promises. Third, supporting our Arctic Council chairmanship, which the State Department is really the lead on, and we should be incredibly proud of how the State Department and Admiral Papp, our special representative for the Arctic, has just raised the bar in terms of Arctic Council chairman, chairmanship and delivering on the, the issues of the people of the Arctic, whether it's telecom, whether it's health, even suicide prevention, which is a rampant epidemic in the Arctic and the like. And then last, the people of the Arctic, and when it comes to our Arctic, the people of Alaska, and improving engagement and consultation um, between state, local, tribal, the federal government, and international, bringing that more and closer together. And we've just been really pleased what we've heard from the state government in terms of just getting with the people of Alaska and the Arctic here or in Alaska to talk about what are the challenges, what are the uncertainties and anxieties of the people who live there, and what is it that the federal government can do. That is the essence and the reality of what the Arctic Executive Steering Committee, me and my deputy, Renee Wagner, try to do every day. Um, but I will say that we have a unity of purpose within the federal family and a shared sense of the challenge and of the opportunity like I haven't seen before. Well, great, uh, and thank you for sharing those thank, examples. Yeah. Melanie, let me ask you, you talked about energy diplomacy and thinking about the fact that we have the chairmanship. I can't help but think a challenge, a policy challenge that both Republican and Democratic administrations have faced in dealing with the Arctic, and we haven't gotten over this yet, and that is the U.S. ratification of law of the sea. So. Could you comment on that? How does that affect our diplomacy? You know, and I, I put it in bipartisan terms because I know that both Republican administrations have put this forward and Democratic administrations have put this forward to our Congress, but our Congress has not moved on this issue. Um, talk a little bit about that, about how that fits in in terms of, I'm gonna broaden your piece in energy and environmental diplomacy. 
and what we're trying to achieve. Well, as you know, we're strongly committed to, uh, like previous administrations, oh, let me just grab that, um, to, the, you know, to the ratification of Law mm -hmm. of the Sea. And um, so prior to coming to my current position, I had worked in the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, where then at the time, Chairman Kerry led an incredible effort to try to move that forward. Mm -hmm. uh, prior to Chairman Kerry, uh, then Chairman Luger also ran that, a similar mm -hmm. process to try to move forward. So you're absolutely correct that it's a bipartisan, it has been a bipartisan interest uh, for many, many years. Despite the inaction on the congressional side, as you know, the U.S. is already operating in many ways that this is already the governing, uh, the governing rules within the region, and we operate in that way in particular. Mm -hmm. And that has been one that's obviously helped us in terms of our engagement in the region because we're already operating as if this is, this is law. Uh, but in terms of us not actually being a formal party, there are, you know, as, as we saw when we were in the Senate, uh, there were concerns with us not being a party. There's certain aspects of the treaty that would allow us in terms of rare earth minerals or mineral rights components. And therefore, again, it's always been put forward as a key priority. Unfortunately, you know, at times when we saw when we were in the Senate, politics got in the way. Uh, it wasn't a substantive issue. If it was, I think we would be in a position where this would be already uh, done. But and unfortunately, we were unable to move it then. In terms of our day-to-day -day operations and our engagement on energy issues, uh, we've been in, in the fortune position where, despite not being a formal party to the convention, to the Law of the Sea Convention, we are able to move forward and make progress in cooperation with partners in the region. We're able to work collaboratively with many of our partners in the region as well. Uh, but again, the, the one aspect is that that governing component uh, we still are not party to, and that, that, has, been a, that has been a concern. But again, we, we hope that the next administration and potentially the next Congress, again, it, it tends to be, it's got to be a meeting of the minds of both. Right. Um, so when that time happens, that'll be of utmost importance. But until then, uh, we have the, the benefit of at least having partners in the region and partners uh, in the area to, to help us pursue a lot of our key priorities. Okay, great. And Kathleen, let me ask you uh, sort of two-part. Um, one is, you know, the Arctic Council, when I served in government, we didn't have a observers and mm -hmm. now it's really expanded and I if the audience knows you have representation uh, China is an observer Singapore is an observer you have a number of countries I'm not naming them all that are observers say a little bit about that about how they work on the agenda where they fit in um, and also the second part is because you really gave us a window on the indigenous interaction uh, and as did you with your story about going up north and meeting with the Sami tribe. One of the unique aspects of the Arctic Council is the fact that you have government, usually uh, foreign and environmental ministers, mostly foreign ministers, sitting at the table. And then you also have the tribal heads sitting at the table speaking to the issue. So two parts. Talk a bit about the observers in the council and also how's it going with regard to the indigenous uh, population and the actual func mm -hmm. functioning of the council mm -hmm. itself. Mm -hmm. Great. Thanks for the question. Um, you know, I think the, the fact that the Arctic Council um, opened up um, the opportunity for observers to join was a, a really key development. I mean, it really widened the dialogue beyond just the eight Arctic nations mm -hmm. to allow other countries who have a stake in the Arctic um, and who are emitting uh, black carbon and, and CO2 that is affecting the, the rate of warming in the Arctic to, to come together and really be part of the dialogue on what are the challenges and, and what are the solutions. And you know, one good example of that is um, when Secretary Kerry initially took on the, the chairmanship of the Arctic Council in 2015, um, the, the council passed uh, or agreed to implement a framework 
to uh, reduce or enhance action to reduce black carbon and methane. And as part of that framework, observers were actually invited um, to, to join, to submit uh, emissions inventories, and um, also to, to develop action plans. And it's absolutely critical that these observer countries um, to be part of that conversation because their emissions are having such a significant impact on what's happening in the Arctic. I think that's been a real, you know, positive step forward. I think, you know, it's it's there's a there's a thin line that needs to be walked. I think um, the observers do not enjoy um, the status that the Arctic nations do. Um, they they are not active participants in the decision making, but they can engage in mm -hmm. in the solutions, which I think is very positive. Um, and the other, on the indigenous piece, um, you know, I think um, clearly there's so much at stake for um, the indigenous communities in the Arctic. Um, and one of the big areas, um, one, a big priority of the Arctic Council has been, under the U.S. chairmanship, improving the economic and living conditions of, uh, of communities in the high north. And as part of that, there's been an active effort to develop uh, a comprehensive adaptation strategy and plan. And that has been uh, developed with careful input from local groups, um, from indigenous uh, leaders, to, to try to um, put the best solutions and the best practices and identify where the needs are in terms of technical assistance to help Arctic communities uh, adapt. So I think that is um, also a very positive development with the Arctic Council. Right. And one more just for all of you. I'm, I'm not going to ask the question about the next administration. I'll leave that for all of you if you want to push them. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask a different one, and that's Russia. Where does Russia fit in this mix? Because uh, uh, you know, I thought, okay, we only have the one icebreaker, and you know, when you have humanitarian crises, you got to all work together. And I think there are realities of what you do and how you do it. But also, we know there have been a number of challenges, uh, markers that have been laid down uh, by the Russians in terms of territorial claims. Uh, that's why I asked the Law of the Sea uh, Treaty question. So address that a little bit. Uh, I'd like to hear how have they fit in, and any of you can jump forward on this one. Let me start by saying that it is the administration's policy to continue to collaborate with Russia on Arctic science and research. And I think the, the, the benefit for the American interest was seen in the output of the White House Arctic Science Ministerial, where the Russians participated at a high level, were part of some of the key combinations and alignments um, pertaining to monitoring and observing. Um, and that has a benefit for us all. Um, and we, we were glad that they participated. Um, it is an example of, of collaboration that we can invoke elsewhere. Um, and so to us, you know, the Arctic is a zone of peaceful collaboration, of cooperation. We want it to remain that way in the future. Any militarization of the Arctic undercuts the peaceful underpinnings of the Arctic Council. And from that is very much our perspective and um, what we're trying to pursue. I don't know if my colleagues. And I would just add to, in addition to the ministerial, the Arctic Council itself, under the US chairmanship, there's been great collaboration with our Russian counterparts and their attendance and participation through the Arctic Council as well. So in addition to the ministerial earlier this year, 
the council is also a great example of where that collaboration is. And again, it just uh, it reiterates that aspect of this region in particular being of utmost foreign policy and national security and energy and economic priority <laughs> and these shared interests that all parties of the Arctic Council actually have. And therefore, there's a real interest in, in all parties participating. And so from the Russia perspective, um, and to the Russia question, I've, I've personally been very impressed with the type of collaboration that we've seen despite other challenges and other fora uh, with various countries, frankly, uh, but really having the Arctic and that they, the communal purpose and the shared interest of the region across economic, environmental, energy, uh, security being really a core tenant to, to where everyone comes together has been really impactful on me personally as well. I think one of the yeah. challenges will be what you, Ambassador Brzezinski, mentioned is militarization because there have been reports of activity up in the Arctic Circle of a military nature and building uh, facilities. So it's how you deal with energy and environmental and climate change issues and at the same time other issues like in the military lane that are also going on simultaneously. Um, so, And to that end, actually, I would, just, I would comment that sure. uh, when the White House and the Secretary of State uh, appointed Admiral Papp to his position, mm -hmm. it was in recognition of the fact that you've got now this, this blending of, of interest and the need for a priority of the Arctic to be much broader in scope. And, and part of that was representing the Admiral's appointment. Okay, thank you for that. Let's go to all of you. Um, uh, we have mics. We have we got the mic right over there. So why don't you take it? We see your paper. Could you stand up and introduce yourself? Tell us who you are. Sure. Hi, I'm Melissa Hirsch. I'm a risk consultant. This is a question to the panel, and I think the last two comments and questions really pertain to this. I was interested in what role you think the military or National Guard equivalents will be for all the members to be involved in disaster preparedness and response. So you may not, you may want to avoid the militarization, but you still may need to have the militaries involved with disaster response to floods, to emerging and re-emerging infectious diseases, and to other climatological impacts. Can I'm going to add a B onto her question. Also the question of these uh, cutters, the icebreakers. Yeah, I mean, we exactly. only have one and we've been leasing them. And so is that part of the agenda? Because your question also goes to that, the fact that we're uh, looking to others for assistance ourselves. Okay, uh, uh, that's, no, 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 we're gonna have you answer it and then we'll go to him, okay? <laughs> Sorry, please. Let me focus on disaster preparedness because it's something that every Arctic country shares. And what we, we're able to bear witness to this year is the, for the first time a very large cruise liner, the Crystal, the Crystal Serenity, sailed with more than a thousand passengers at more than $20,000 a ticket, ticket, I will add. I was shocked by that number. Um, from Seward, Alaska to New York um, across the top of Canada. Um, and Given the remoteness um, of where that ship was going, it was incumbent on us to do all of our due diligence in terms of um, potential disaster, disaster relief and recovery. And our Coast Guard um, and our Department of Homeland Security, first on tabletop and then as an actual exercises, twice exercised with the other countries of the Arctic on what an effective, realistic 
disaster relief and recovery response would look like um, so that we would be prepared on game day as we were. That to me is the collective self-interest that the Arctic countries have and it walked the walk with again every one of the Arctic countries working through to refine our and we will see more of that if you the the Coast Guard Commandant has spoken with the tourism and the cruise industry and the message has been clear we will see more of those large ships as opposed with, with the tourists and the cruise liners and so forth as opposed to fewer so that's a tactical response a broader whole of US government um, picture I think can be seen in the administration's federal budget request in put out in March of this year, in which really the Arctic became a national imperative for the first time in the history of this country. I mean, Mount Denali was on the cover of this year's uh, federal budget, and that to me was symbolic of what was in the pages. 150 million to build what it takes to build a large icebreaker, something that this government hasn't done since the 1970s. Resilience, $2 billion nationally, but making resilience and adaptation for sea level rise, coastal erosion, a national imperative. And the Denali Commission in Alaska, the appropriate vehicle to work that process, federal, state, local, tribal, um, at the local and state level. And then a commitment um, and a request um, for Arctic science. So that to me is walking the walk in a tactical way and in a budgetary way. And in Washington, you are your budget. So I think that's, that's part of the response to that excellent question. Nothing to add. Uh, just a footnote, is it meaning that's going to translate into more cutters then? Is that what you're saying? It, it, I, I think that it For the Pentagon? The president said icebreakers, icebreakers in his announcement okay. in September. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and it depends, obviously, on Congress funding this. Okay. But um, there was, so there wasn't a so number, a specific number set at this time? The, the focus is on taking, it, it, the focus is on trying to fund what it takes to build an icebreaker, because there's a particular infrastructure needed to even start that process. Mm -hmm. And that's the first step. But I'm glad that we took that first step. That hasn't happened All right. before in a long time. Thank you. You have the mic, and that's Ariel Cohen. Thank you. Uh, fascinating discussion. I remember writing my first articles about the Arctic in 2009 and writing about the icebreaker. So better late than never. Seven years, we're, we're going there. Good. Question about militarization. The Russians are deploying a division uh, in the Far East uh, with the northmost base in Anadir, uh, Chukotka. So they are deploying probably a regiment there. We didn't see anything like that since the Cold War. Uh, they are planning, if I remember correctly, seven bases in the Arctic. What are they doing? Why are they doing it? And what's our response? Thank you. Ambassador Brzezinski, I think that's for you. Sure. Okay. It's, Ariel, good to see you again. It's, it's, it's not clear, but, but we aren't passive or indifferent regarding what happens there. Um, but we're also clear that we do not want to see militarization of the region or the security issue spike. That's, that's where we are. Um, but we're not passive or indifferent to what others do there. Okay. Me meaning? Meaning that no country is preponderant in the Arctic. It is a place of collaboration, 
cooperation and peaceful work right now, and that is what underpins an institution that we are celebrating the 20th anniversary of this year, and that's the founding of the Arctic Council. And the fact that that institution has really evolved at a time of great ascendance of the regional focus and the interest of the world on it says a lot about the kind of institutional underpinnings we have to work together with other countries in the region. Um, and so I think that's incredibly important to preserve. I'll make a quick comment, although I'm the moderator. I think it's a balance, and that's what I was in asking the question about Russia I was also sharing, because I think there's a sentiment among all the countries, including our own, that when there are crises and situations, you have to work together. And I think that uh, was the, one of the messages of this panel of all of the countries. Uh, but I also will point out that a number of countries in Europe have, particularly in the high north, have talked about this issue of the militarization and their concerns uh, as to what it means and what it will translate into, we will see. We've seen aggression that has manifested itself from Moscow. So what does this mean? There is concern, and there's, it's been a focus on, on that, that piece. But if I could also add, Please. Paula, um, you know, I think it's important to accentuate the cooperation as well. I talked about the search and rescue and the cruise ship issue. There's mm -hmm. also a Coast Guard forum in which we also collaborate with Russia in terms of the domain and safety and security. And I think that's a good example of cooperation. Melanie talked about the Arctic Council. One of the things that we are most proud of our chairmanship is the fact that we hope to ratify a, an agreement, the third binding agreement ever, um, within the auspices of the Arctic Council at the spring meeting, at the spring ministerial of the Arctic Council in 2017 in Fairbanks. And that is a science and cooperation agreement. And the two co-chairs, the two co-chairs of the task force that worked to develop that science and cooperation agreement were the U.S. and Russia. That is good in terms of the collective self-interest, all of us, meaning well beyond this room, face in terms of the Arctic issue. And that is our children and our children's issue, and, and our children's children and the world they inherit. And we are seeing an augury of that in the Arctic now. So working with others is incumbent on us. Ambassador Mark Grossman. Yeah, hi, my name is Mark Grossman and thank you very much. I wanted, first of all, to thank you all for working every day to remind people that the United States is an Arctic country and that we have great interest there. And then just to follow up on the point, Paula, you just made about balance. Um, and I guess this is really a question for Melanie and Kathleen. It goes back to Ambassador Morningstar's opening comments about the balance between the climate, the environment, uh, indigenous people, and then oil and gas. And Melanie, I was very much struck by your point on the oil and gas that there's a moment now to kind of take advantage of getting best practices, doing better, figuring this out, and, and using the time that we have to make sure that we use it properly. And then, Kathleen, in your, um, your presentation, it was more, but there are some decisions coming up, like the five-year plan. Let's make sure we don't do things. And I was just thinking that in terms of the Arctic, in terms of strategy, in terms of balance, I'd be interested in your comment about the idea that we ought to be keeping our options open rather than closing them. Mm -hmm. And to Melanie's point, using this time as best we, we can to get ready for some future, right. including mm -hmm. some oil and gas. Mm -hmm. Do you want to start? Sure. 
So as part of the State Department's Energy Resource Bureau, which was just created about five years ago, so for those who don't know, uh, we're a you know, foreign ministry that actually has a bricks and mortar energy bureau that was established by Secretary Clinton, mainly because of this issue of national security, economic development, energy security really coming to the forefront of a foreign policy agenda. And one of the key questions that brought us into this discussion was the diversification of energy resources and the use of energy, both in terms of cooperation and potentially for conflict, especially when we look at where we were five years ago at the creation of the bureau and what was happening with oil prices, the advent of the shale, the gas boom, here in the United States, the U.S. becoming a net energy exporter as well. Um, these were issues that were really coming to the, to the level of a foreign policy engagement strategy, and that's why the Bureau at the time was really an important creation. Since that time, this issue, again, of energy security and energy diversification has led us to engage in various countries and regions on this question of what is the right balance? Where, you know, what do different countries and different regions need when it comes to energy issues, and what's the best suite of solutions? And in many of these countries, it's, it's a mix of energy resources. It's also where's the political pull in those host countries for the different energy solutions. What's imperative upon the United States is to make sure we present an honest case, an honest assessment of the different types of energy resources that the data, the science, the industry all says is economically viable, it's reliable, it's affordable. This moment, not only in the Arctic in terms of you're seeing a lull in terms of Arctic oil and gas development, but we also look at it in the broader context of the low oil price and what that provides us as well over this, the past few years. What's been really interesting to, to me is if you think about the low oil price last year that we saw and where it was heading, many of those in the energy industry would were at the time skeptical that the clean energy investments would actually be high, significant, or peak because oil prices were quite low. Not only did clean energy investment reach an all-time high last year of $350 billion, but that came despite the headwinds of a low oil price. So globally, as well as in the region, you're seeing a real momentum and real interest in the clean energy development deployment, the sustainable energy solutions, uh, despite or in spite of or with a low oil price and low, low energy prices, and in the Arctic region, the lull. Uh, so in terms of the balance, in terms of closing off options or opening up options, the way we've been viewing our engagement in the, in the region, as I mentioned, has been twofold. It's both in terms of looking at the renewable energy resource deployment, but then also looking at the existing hydrocarbon development deployment and what the road mapping looks like for various countries. Some countries might still see that as a core <laughs> fundamental tenant to what they're going to do. And as they do that, we think we've got some really important best practices and lessons learned we can be sharing with those countries as they move in that direction. But this all goes back to the importance of road mapping, having a strategy, having a framework in place, having a vision of where we want to be both in 2020, 2025, 2030. And you're seeing both through the Paris process as well as through countries' own energy mapping exercises, different types of roadmaps coming forward, which is forcing this question on, on climate versus energy. Um, but again, I just don't see it being uh, uh, at odds with one another, frankly, especially in many of these countries and regions you're seeing it as a both and, frankly, because not only do you need the existing resources for some period of time, you also need to start laying the groundwork for more sustainable energy resources to get us off of this boom-bust cycle, to get us off of this import dependence as well. And what's exciting about the Arctic in particular and the rural community aspect is the potential for off-grid, for microgrids, for the vast amount of wind and solar potential many of these places have. And then you look at what's happening with technology advancements. You've got this really interesting work on balancing, uh, balancing regions, transmission capacities that can be balanced with both renewables and traditional energy resources. 
And just recently, uh, the secretary was in Silicon Valley in California, and that's a place where really your mind will get blown in terms of <laughs> what's next uh, beyond the horizon. And frankly, some of those things are moving even closer to the horizon as we mm. speak. Great. Um, so my, my, my point was more about um, looking at the risk uh, that we have. And it's great to see you, Ambassador Grossman. It's been a while. Um, it, it, it's more about the risk. So um, even with President Obama um, and, and the administration have done a great job of looking at what happened in the Gulf Coast um, with that oil spill and trying to really you know, draw from the commission's conclusions and, and develop a higher set of um, standards for to ensure environmental um, and safety with uh, offshore operations. You know, the challenge in the Arctic is the conditions are wildly different than what we see in the Gulf Coast. And we're talking about you know, incredibly rough seas, very high winds, um, and then you add that to the fact that we, we simply don't have the infrastructure. We don't have the ports or the roads or the airports to be able to really bring the personnel in to be able to respond quickly to uh, a spill, which we know is absolutely essential. In the Gulf Coast, we were able to deploy um, ships from um, various ports along the um, eastern seaboard. We had countries like Norway and others bringing their support vessels to help. Uh, we just wouldn't be able to get that kind of response in the Arctic. And you know, with the Department of Interior saying there's a 75% chance of a spill, um, even with the um, the new standards, that's a that's a high risk. And when you don't have any way to mitigate that risk. I say, you know, we, we should take it off the table until we can get those that capacity and infrastructure in place to be able to respond to the risk. Okay, thank you. Ambassador Morningstar, we began with you. I think we're going to end with you because we're oh, approaching okay. time. Oh, okay, well, and we have to if get there's in the somebody else, that's okay. <laughs> we have to get in the question also, which uh, I'll add on, is please, what, what do you do for the transition and for the next administration? What can we expect? What are you doing for tra transition preparation in the next, you know, Okay, well, but my please, question, question actually, was and hopefully I'll briefly, briefly comment on that. Even though I'm chairman of the Global Energy Council uh, Center, uh, I'd like to go back briefly to the militarization question okay. and ask, what's the mandate of the Arctic Council? Uh, I mean, I can imagine that from all of your discussion that, you know, you're dealing with cooperative Russians on, you know, on the issues that you're, that, that you've been, uh, that you've been talking about, but there may be totally different people in Moscow who are looking at things from more of a military and political and security strategy standpoint with respect to the Arctic. If this speak, does become an increasing problem, is it an Arctic Council issue or is it something that needs to be handled in other, you know, other fora? Uh, and so I think it does go back a little bit to what, what the mandate is. And maybe it is somewhere else that it needs to be handled. Let me take that question, then hand to my colleagues the other question. Um, Ambassador Morningstar, the, the essence of the mandate is this, and that is a collective response is the most effective response. Meaning the Arctic is of a scale and of an expense to operate that no one country can do it alone. So drawing in others, even beyond the Arctic, is an opportunity. Whether it pertains to domain awareness or, or science, um, native and tribal health, resilience for remote communities, maximizing what it is that we can learn from each other, 
making sure that we fully have exploited the potential of what America and Canada can learn from each other in terms of remote communities and resilience. Because after, after all, we share a North American Arctic with them and their remote communities are facing the same problems as ours. Have we fully, fully maximized the potential of that? That to me is a metaphor of a broader assessment that, that I think we, we all know needs to be done. And you see different think tanks around Washington doing it, kind of an assessment of what others are doing there, um, what is their motivations, and how can we work together to, again, produce a collective response as the most effective response. Okay. And if you both would address, you know, what are you doing for your preparations? Because it's part of transition, and what can we expect uh, from uh, next administration? And sure. I mean, in terms in of place, and then also playing on Ambassador Morningstar's last question sure. as well. Please. The Arctic Council to date has not tackled secure militarization or security in the hard security lane, as as you had just asked. And so, again, as we think about looking ahead, uh, you know, I'm not speaking on behalf of what I think the next administration should do in this space, but you think you raise a really important question, which is, what is, the, is there a role for the Arctic Council on the harder security questions? Or frankly, you know, when it was created, it was specifically not addressing those aspects. Those were left for other international venues that handle those questions. And so um, to date, the Arctic Council, as Ambassador Brzezinski mentioned, was really focused on more of the cooperative energy environment uh, technical human capacity and human capital components to the Arctic region uh, versus those the security elements to it. In terms of on the transition, really excited to say that the Arctic, our U.S. Arctic Council chairmanship uh, transcends or you know goes through the transition in that we uh, our chairmanship will end next next spring or you know early next year in 2017. So the current existing work programs under the U.S. chairmanship will continue moving forward until we hand it over to Finland, which is really exciting for us because again many of those core tenants that we put forward were developed in collaboration both with our, the previous chairmanship, the the Canadians, as well as with the future uh, chairmanship, the the Finnish as well. So you'll see that continu continuation going forward. You also heard about the budgetary aspects and where you see that moving forward uh, in terms of moving forward and transition. And in general, again, this is an area that uh, we have seen incredible bipartisan support for engagement in and uh, continued support for it going forward. And so we really uh, expect to see that continuing on uh, well into next year as we, as we hand over our chairmanship. Well, in, in my view, I think the next president is going to have a very pressing to-do list, a very long mm. and pressing to-do list to, to really you know, tackle this global challenge of, of climate change. Uh, not only will that next president need to work actively through the Arctic Council to make sure that we implement the, the black carbon uh, regional targets that, that Melanie talked about, um, but also to make sure we, we deliver the right science to world leaders as they think about implementing Paris. The next president will have to play a leading role as President Obama has done in the international arena uh, to ensure continued global progress on curbing climate change. Uh, the next president will make, need to make sure that we implement our Paris target um, and to make sure that we and other countries uh, put forward more ambitious targets uh, going forward. This weekend we passed uh, a new amendment uh, through the Montreal Protocol to phase out heat trapping 
uh, HFCs. This is a very dangerous and potent greenhouse gas. Um, this is absolutely critical uh, and groundbreaking agreement that the next president will have to lead in terms of implementing. Um, the list goes on and on, a new agreement this month on aviation emissions. Um, and not to mention, the next president will have to lead a very ambitious foreign policy agenda. Um, just last month, the National Intelligence Council released a report showing that climate change is uh, a very pressing uh, threat multiplier. It, in, it accelerates conflict in already unstable regions of the world. Uh, it, it increases migration. Uh, it cre increases food instability. Um, huge uh, impacts that affect um, stability in already regions that are threatened uh, in addition to sea level rise. The next president is going to have to take this into account in uh, his or her next, in his or her foreign policy agenda. You know, looking at the candidates, we have one candidate who thinks climate change is a hoax. Uh, who says um, he will cancel the parents Paris deal? Uh, another clim another um, candidate uh, says that this is a pressing global challenge. We need ambitious action to address it, both internationally and domestically. I will leave you to decide who who's the most uh, fit to uh, implement the agenda that's ahead of us. Thank, Thank you, you, Kathleen. One footnote: uh, I'm doing as uh, taking the prerogative of being the moderator. Uh, in answer to that question. I'd give you the answer that the Arctic Council, and from having been an undersecretary and attending the Arctic Council meetings in Finland, that was my first one, then in Russia, chaired by uh, Minister Lavrov uh, in Siberia uh, and Salikard, uh, and then uh, Iceland. Those were the three that I went to on my watch. My own personal view is I think the Arctic Council is a very unique body that really devotes itself to the environment, energy, health issues, humanitarian issues. The mandate is not one of, of that. But I see NATO as that's where that topic is, has arisen and has come up and I think will continue. But the question was, while such good work is being done in this domain, how do you also deal with that ongoing um, uh, circumstance that has arisen at the same time. But I want to especially thank all three of you. You really have shed light on an important topic and how much has really been changed and done in advance. So congratulations to all three of you. We were very lucky today to have you tell us about the accomplishments, the historical changes made. So really, just thank you. Let's give them a, a good applause. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you, uh, Thank you everybody. That was a good session. Yeah, yeah definitely.